0: name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. We are working our way through Genesis. I've been doing it for a while, and uh, we are now in Genesis chapter 34. Uh, Kenny was very happy that he did not have to preach this passage of Scripture, because it, if you read ahead, anybody read ahead? Anybody? at all? yeah. So you're all like, what is he going to do with this one, right? And uh, Genesis chapter 34, you don't, if you go online and you start searching for sermons on Genesis chapter 34, there just aren't that many of them. Um. It's one of those passages of Scripture where, quite honestly, it brings you to a place of possibly questioning whether Paul was right when he said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Because I read this passage of Scripture and I just get disgusted and I get angry and I get a little sad and I get um, just disturbed, for lack of a better way of putting it, and so... Fair warning, Um, this is not going to be one of those passages where you're just going to go home after the sermon and you're like, you know, I just feel so good about myself today and about humanity, and the whole world is shinier today. Let's go tiptoe through through the tulips together and get ready for Easter. Yay, Jesus. It might not be one of those sermons, uh, but what it will do, I hope, is it will give us context for the way the world really is. Because when we read chapter 34 of Genesis, quite honestly, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. It tells us how the world actually is. It shows us the heinous reality of the depravity of humanity. And how even the people who are called the people of God can be guilty of heinous sins against one another and against the world. Let's just have a reality check for just a second. How many things have been done over the course of the last 2,000 years of Christendom, in the name of Jesus that have been evil. If we're honest with ourselves and we look at the world around us and we look at the things that have been done, slavery was defended by Christianity. Entire wars have been fought for the cause of Jesus when really it was for the cause of gain. And the fact of the matter is we, we come to this place where even the people who are called by the name of Jesus can do evil things. So let's just come to terms with that. That we have within us a warring nature. We have a war going on. We have an old nature and a new nature as believers in Jesus Christ. We have a new nature that's given to us by Jesus, that we are new creatures in Him. And yet, we have an old nature that's constantly at war with our new nature. Our flesh is constantly at war with this new spiritual reality. So we are... We are apt to do some of the most horrible things. And here's what's interesting. So we tend to do the most horrible things to the people we love the most. We tend to say and do things to the people who are closest to us that we dearly love, that are supposed to be the ones who are under our care. And so as we come to Genesis chapter 34, we're going to see tragedy abound. And today I just want you to see three lessons in this, this tragedy. I want you to see the dangers of halfway obedience. Because halfway obedience is actually full disobedience. All the parents in the room said amen to that, right? So how many times has something like that come out of your mouth to your children? You know, you only halfway obey and halfway obedience is really just disobedience. But the same is true of our relationship with God. And so I want you to see the dangers of halfway obedience. I want you to see the consequences of sin and how God, even when we are under grace and we belong to him, how he uses the consequences of our sin to draw us closer to him, to make us more into the image of Jesus. And then I want you to see the solution. For your sin and the solution for the injustice in the world and that's a lot to cover and I know that but I think it's going to become very clear in this story so if you would just follow along in your copy of God's word if you didn't bring a Bible with you Bible apps are great but I'd also encourage you to grab the Bible in the pew back in front of you and follow along Genesis chapter 34 now Dinah the daughter of Leah and remember that Jacob has uh, two wives and two concubines two wives one Leah he did not like much at all she had a lazy eye that's what the Bible says. Um, and so she, he didn't really care for her. And she's had tons of kids, and she's had the only daughter he has. And Now, I am a father of two daughters, and so this resonates with me. He had one daughter, Dinah, through Leah. And he doesn't seem to care about her at all. He doesn't favor Leah, and so he doesn't favor her children, and especially Dinah, the daughter. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, I mean, we don't even get the daughter of Jacob there, do we? the daughter of Leah, that's how little he thinks of her, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So what does that mean? She went out, she, she's, a, she's out there and she says, I want to see what's going on. You can imagine growing up as the only sister among a whole bunch of brothers. She's like, I want to go out into the land, I want to explore. But this was unheard of for a woman her age. It was unheard of in the culture for her to go out into the world. And we also know from previous chapters that the women of the land were not the best. If you remember, Esau married the women of the land and it caused a lot of trouble for his parents. So she's going out and she finds herself in trouble. She's going out and hanging out with the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And just to clarify, that phraseology and the way that it works out, he raped her. He defiled her. But he didn't then despise her. Instead, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. What that means is he kept her in his house. So not only has he raped her, he's kidnapped her. And now she's in his home, a prisoner of this man who has this lust-love relationship with her. And he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, and this is how highly he thought of her with his love, get me this girl for my wife. Now, I called my now-in-laws to ask for my wife's hand in marriage. I did not say, get me this here girl for my wife. It's just not the way it goes. But this is what, I guess, fleshly love and lust looks like. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. What? As a dad of two daughters, I find out my daughter's been defiled, I'm not waiting till her brothers come home. Like, I get it. Moms sometimes go, "Wait till your dad gets home, but no dad should ever say, "Wait till your brothers get home." But that's what happens here. He has zero care for her. He's become so so complacent in his role that he's not even willing to stand up for his daughter who's been defiled. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. And reminder, it's not just that she's been defiled, but now the whole family has been defiled. This is supposed to be a set-apart group of people, a new nation, a new people that God is calling out, and now she's been defiled, and the whole nation has been defiled. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade it and get property in it. Now, this is what I want to make sure you understand about what's happening here. This is not just going to be a marriage of Shechem to Dinah. This is going to be a marriage of one nation to another nation. A new nation has been formed when they left Laban's land and now they formed a new nation but let's just go ahead and compromise let's just go ahead and find a place in the land so what happened here? how did Jacob get to this point? wasn't Jacob the guy who just wrestled with God through the night and had this great mountaintop faith experience? how is he in this position now? I'll tell you how he got to this position 20 miles short he was supposed to go to Bethel and he stopped He stopped short of obedience to the Lord. And as he stopped 20 miles short of full obedience to the Lord, he found himself in a place of complacency. Maybe he said, hey, I wrestled with God. I prevailed. I'm pretty strong here. Maybe he found himself in a place where these people were willing to trade with him, and he's like, I don't want to be a sojourner in the land like my dad was and my grandfather was. I want to have a piece of this. So he's able to trade with them and get what he wants. But ultimately, he's willing to compromise everything that the Lord has promised him just to stop 20 miles short. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. He's willing to pay whatever. And usually there's a dowry, usually some sort of bride price, but it was a set amount, and now he's willing to do whatever it takes. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Just go ahead and underline that word. Who does that sound like? Jacob the deceiver, now coming upon his own sons, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition (laughs) will... I'm sorry. It just gets wild from here, so just brace yourself if you haven't read it. So I I get to this point every time, and I'm like, they deceitfully and wow. And... (laughs) Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. This is the deal we'll make with you. All of the men of the city should be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words somehow pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Probably because this wasn't an unusual thing. It was a custom in some of these areas at the time for at marriage for men to be circumcised. Also, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham's line had been living in the land and so they were known as the circumcised one among the land. And so to become a part of the family it seemed like a, a thing you'd have to do. And the young man did not delay to do the thing. He went right ahead and did it because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Notice they say they're at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. So they want to make a deal that's beneficial to everybody. Let us... Take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Let me make sure you understand what's happening here. Pagan and believer are taking a holy thing and using it for their own benefit. Something that God had designed to set his people apart now is being used by Jacob's sons and by a pagan people to say, we can get gain out of this. Now just as an aside, because this is nowhere near the point of my sermon. Have we ever done that? Anybody here guilty like I am of taking holy things? I'll give you a small example. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor. I always, when we played kickball in the playground at school, I always wanted to be the pitcher Right, the guy who got to roll the ball because I had this really cool spin that I put on the ball, and I wanted to be the uh, third grade. I wanted to be the pitcher every time. This is how I got to be a pitcher every day at recess. My dad's a pastor. He talks directly to God. I'm not saying he will, but he might have bad things happen to you if you don't let me be the pitcher. You all think I'm kidding, but actually those of you who know me for any length of time know I'm not kidding whatsoever. But the fact that I would use whatever it took. I'd take the holiest of things and use it to my advantage. How often do we do that? Just to preserve our position and to get more out of life. To maybe take a shortcut towards what God has promised us. That we're not willing to wait until the end of the story when we get all of the reward. We want it now. So we'll use even the holiest of things to get it. That's what's happening here. They're no different than the pagans. They're turning holy things into defiled things. And this is what happens. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. Evidently, they were the most persuasive people in the history of mankind. Because they persuaded every man in the city to be circumcised. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. And they all got it done in a day. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon, (laughs) I told you, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, not the oldest, not the fourth, but second and third, Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. These guys were laying on their couches recovering, watching March Madness. They were all killed. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Not only did they kill the two men responsible, they killed every male and then the other brothers came in and took all their stuff and took their wives and their children. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. No eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth here. It's not real justice. It's vengeance. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. He doesn't say you have done evil in the sight of God. He doesn't say you have sinned. He doesn't even say it should have been an eye for an eye if you were going to do this. How dare you? He's only concerned about his himself. He doesn't even say, you know... Anything about his daughter, anything about God, it's only about himself. You've made life difficult for me. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they took the moral high ground here, as their blades were glistening in the sun, and their faces and their clothes were bathed in the blood of the people of the city. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? How easy it is to justify the most heinous of sins in the middle of compromise and complacency. In the middle of halfway obedience. So what do we take from this? There's so many directions you could go with this and I could parse every little thing in here but as I read through it and I kept reading through it and I read going over the Atlantic and I read coming back over the Atlantic and I, I just kept on having this marinade through and figure out what was happening here and there are three things I want us to see from this passage three lessons in the middle of this tragedy because you can't call it anything but tragedy when people who are called by God's name act this way you can call it nothing but tragedy what happened to Dinah was a tremendous tragedy you can't call it anything else what happened to the men of the city was a tremendous tragedy you can't can't call it anything else what happens to Jacob's family here is a tremendous tragedy and you can't call it anything else so the first thing I want you to see is the dangers of halfway obedience not going all the way in obedience and before you say well I would never stop 20 miles short I mean 20 miles after all that distance why is he stopping short let me just ask you do you pray without ceasing or only pray when it's convenient halfway obedience Do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's a good one, right? Until your neighbor forgets to return the thing that they borrowed, then it's not as easy. Or your neighbor's limb falls on your fence and it's not as easy. Maybe neighbor's really noisy and it's not as easy. But even if you love your neighbor as yourself, do you love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. So before we get all high and mighty that we would never be like this, let's make sure we understand halfway obedience is a way of life for so many of us. And we're to go to war against halfway obedience. John Piper put it this way, and I think it's really helpful. It's like our job is not to manage sin, it's to kill sin. John Owen says if you're not killing sin, it will be killing you we've got to go after it and we've got to kill it halfway obedience is complete disobedience although we would not be guilty of that but I want you to see what it produces halfway obedience builds a culture of complacency here's here's Jacob and he's just had this great moment where he wrestles with God he's on this mountaintop high of faith and we, we look at him and God gives him a new name he's now Israel and he's like this guy's finally got it he's been a punk this whole time And finally, he's got it. And in the next breath, he's deceiving his brother Esau. And he's coming up short in obedience. And he doesn't even care about his own daughter who gets raped. And he's not concerned about the sins of his sons, only about how they affect him. Where did he go wrong? Complacency. He was resting in his highs of obedience, in his strengths. Have you ever noticed how God... Sometimes brings us down from those strengths into the pit to remind us that it's not by our strength, but by his might You ever been there where you've had those moments where you are just like great success and you're like, yes Maybe I actually am a follower of Jesus, (laughs) right? Maybe he does love me. Maybe I've got this thing down and the next breath you're saying thinking Acting in a way that would not honor God at all And you're wondering what happened? You find yourself feeling the condemnation of that moment or maybe you just find yourself so callous that you don't even recognize it and you've fallen off the cliff of unrighteousness and you wonder, what happened? Sometimes God allows us into those places to remind us it's not by our might or our strength. But we need Him. When we get complacent because of the successes and the strengths of our lives, oftentimes we forget to daily trust God. That's why I love that Jesus tells us when we pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Because some of us have enough money to not have to worry about where the bread is coming from today. And he still wants us to pray that. That it's not by our ability, not by our strength, but by his might. Resting in past successes will lead us away from daily trusting God. Remember your weakness and that in your weakness he is the one who is strong. If you don't remember your weakness, he'll cause you to remember your weakness he'll bring you to a place of weakness. Halfway obedience builds a culture of moral compromise with the world. That's what's happened here. He moves into the area. He's making deals. He's doing all the things that he can do well. He's scheming and he's plotting and he's gaining. And ultimately, this moral compromise leads to a place where his own daughter is left in the world where he's not even watching out for her. And let's not let her brothers off the hook. They should have been watching out for her too, but they weren't. And here she is in the culture and she's defiled in the culture. Moral compromise will always lead to destruction. But halfway obedience is the pathway to moral compromise. Halfway obedience builds a culture of deception in our own families and in the next generation. How easy it is to lie to ourselves. You ever lie to yourself? It's not really that bad. Other people are doing it. Not really that bad because it's not as bad as those people. I'm a child of God. God will forgive me, so it can't be that bad. In fact, I got away with it, so he must not have a problem with it. Ever found yourself thinking any of those things? Because I have. We look at the world around us and we begin to compare ourselves as opposed to trusting God. And so we find ourselves in this deceiving place we deceive ourselves we deceive others that's what's going on in this passage of scripture Jacob has had a life of deception he's deceived his father he's deceived his brother he's deceived his uncle he's deceived every his uncle father-in-law he's deceived everybody he's just gotten done with deceiving Esau again and now what's happened it's his own son's are in the business of deceit, the sins of the father being being visited upon the sins of the sons. And oh, that we, as parents, grandparents, even as teenagers who may be in here, oh, that that cycle of self-deception and deception of others would end with us, and not be passed on. That we would not look at our own feelings and our own. Ideas as what's right and wrong, but instead go to God's Word and line ourselves up with what it says so that we would not be deceiving ourselves or others. The dangers of halfway obedience, complacency, compromise, deception. But then, really, in this passage, what you see is all of that halfway obedience that is really just disobedience and sin has consequences. As God's children of grace, knowing that we're under grace and Jesus has taken our sin upon him, then how does God deal with the consequences of those sins in our lives? Because we know the eternal consequences of our sins, if we've trusted Jesus, are supposed to be dealt with, right? The eternal consequences of separation from God, being in hell, suffering for eternity, that's all dealt with by Jesus. We get eternity with him because he's died on the cross for our sins. We've trusted him. He's risen from the dead. He gives us new life. So what about the consequences now? Have you ever noticed that sometimes God lets you get away with it? That ever happened in your life? That you you sin in this way, sometimes even an outward heinous sin, and you're like, oh, I'm going to pay for this one. And nobody ever ever calls you on it. Ever happened to you? Because it's happened to me where I'm just like I said the wrong thing, I did the wrong thing, I was angry, mean, I, and it never comes back to bite me. Anybody? That this is confession time. This is confession portion of the service. So just to make sure, because I know I've dealt with that. And then there's other times where I do something where I'm like, well, that's not that big of a deal, and it blows up in my face. Anybody? And you're just like, well, I, why? And how does that work? that sometimes the biggest things we get away with and the littlest things blow up in our face. What is, what's the deal with that? I don't understand how God works in that. I want to make sure you understand this. Sometimes God does deliver us from the consequences of our sin. Think about Abraham earlier in his story when he basically pawned off his wife Sarah twice, right? Pawned her off to save his own skin and walked away from the situation, not with condemnation, but with more stuff. Walked out of Egypt with camels and herds and flocks and all kinds of money. Went back a wealthy man, and he had sinned in a heinous public way. He had given over his wife to be used by another man. And he got away with it. And yet in the next breath, Lot's not getting away with it. Lot has just compromised a little bit. He's moved into the city. And he loses his wife because of his sin. How does that work that sometimes God delivers us and sometimes God gives us over to our sins and the consequences of our sins? I want to make sure you understand this. In this story, Jacob is not escaping the consequences of his sins. He's escaped a lot up to this point. But there's a lesson God is teaching Jacob here. And that is, God's not going to be mocked by Jacob. God is not going to be complicit in Jacob's sin. God is not going to be an enabler of Jacob to say, keep doing what you're doing, buddy, you'll get it one day. No, God is not going to be mocked by Jacob anymore. And so the consequences of his sins come upon him in this deep, dark way so that Jacob will be made into the man God wants him to be. If you've ever dealt with the consequences of your sin, it's not condemnation from God, it's grace this is the ultimate act of God's discipline upon Jacob's life. That Jacob would continue in this deceitful halfway obedience where he's deceiving us. Hey, I'm back in the land. I must be doing enough. And yet all of that comes home to roost through his daughter and through his sons. And now he's got to deal with the consequences of it. Why? So that he'll come to a place of trusting God. So that he'll come to a place of understanding God's grace because God is always working for our holiness and he's always working out his grace if we are his children Now if you're here today and you're not a child of God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ and You haven't placed your trust in Jesus Then all that he's done by dying on the cross in your place and rising again from the dead if you've never done that You are under condemnation All that's happening all the consequences of your sin are nothing compared to what you're going to experience for eternity unless you trust Jesus And I need you to hear that because that's the most loving thing I can tell you today. Is that the consequences you're experiencing right now for your sin, or maybe you're one of those who's here and you seem to be getting away with it. You seem to be getting away with everything. Let me just tell you, God disciplines those whom He loves, and if you're just constantly getting away with it, it's a sign, it could be a sign that you're not walking with the Lord. And if you're a believer and you're constantly getting away with it he won't let that happen forever because he loves you too much isn't that how we are with our own children nip it in the bud right, that's what we've got to do but at other times we want to show grace we want them to learn we want them to grow but there comes a point where you can't let them get away with it anymore God loves us that much See, the consequences of sin are often generational. That's what's happening here. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his sons. The consequences of sin are always tragic and deadly. Sometimes we think that our sins are never going to hurt anybody else, but there's always collateral damage when it comes to sin. What you might be doing in private is something that's going to devastate other people. That is why so many marriages end, because of what's done in private. Families are devastated by what happens in private. I would just encourage you today to know that you won't get away with it forever. He won't let you. He loves you too much. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this sin? What is the solution? The solution is very simple. You can't do anything about it. You can't manage it. You can't make it better. You can't get rid of it. You can't manage the consequences. You can't be scheming enough. You can't be wise enough. You can't be worldly enough to get away with it forever. You can't do it. God will move. He will either move or through giving you faith by His grace so that you will trust Jesus who took all of your sin upon Himself. Or He will move in judgment. But He's going to move. He's not going to let you get away with it. He's not going to let me get away with it. He's not going to let us get away with it. And He didn't let Jacob get away with it. And I want to implore you today to trust Jesus for what He's done because Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. See, Shechem's sinned in this story... Jacob sinned in this story. Jacob's sons sinned in this story. But was there ever justice in this story? I was on the plane coming back from Spain and I just as I was I was looking at all of this and I was finalizing things, I was I started going through, you know, the, the video screen, what movies were there. And it was astounding how many revenge movies there are. Just on an airplane flight. Everything is a revenge movie. We love revenge movies. We love comeuppance, don't we? We love it when people get what's coming to them. Right? How many times have you been watching sports and the guy who scores the touchdown and he like makes a big show of himself, you're like, man, I sure wish somebody would just spear that guy right now. And he'd get what's coming to him. Right? I mean, it's like, I know you've thought it because you just chuckled. Okay? Usually it's for the other team, right? But not for your team. But how, we love revenge, don't we? Why do we love vengeance so much? Because we're never really concerned with justice. We like to cry, injustice, 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 but what we really want is revenge. Is that not why God says vengeance is mine, says the Lord? <laughs> because we'd be really bad at it. Jacob's sons were really bad at it was no vengeance here there was no real justice they just went on and slaughtered. genocide is what they went to it took them three days to come up with genocide so i ask you what what does it look like for there to be real justice for there to be a real defeat of sin for there to be a lasting peace because the the people of the land said we're at peace with them let's let them dwell in the land how long would that last It wasn't going to last forever. Even if this had worked out and they had made a deal, it wasn't going to last forever. No, only through Jesus, only through His sacrifice for sin can we find true justice. And can we find a real defeat of sin. Because there was no defeat of sin here. There was no punishment for sin here. This was just vengeance against sinners. And praise the Lord, we do not get vengeance from God for our sin. He is not taking vengeance against us. He's instead took, taken all of His wrath towards sin and placed it on Jesus for us. Praise the Lord for His grace in that. But in Jesus, we get all of the defeat of sin, but we don't get destroyed in the meantime. And ultimately, there's real lasting peace. So as I close now, this passage is awful. Horrible, Horrid. There's no way around it. You can look at it and you want to condemn the actions of Shechem. You want to condemn the actions of a complacent father. You want to condemn the actions of vengeful brothers. You want to condemn the actions of everyone in the story. But I ask you, where's the outrage towards our own sin? That's what struck me this morning. As I just prayed, Lord, all of this is really head knowledge. But Where does this come home to roost in my life? I've never killed anybody. I know that's important for all of you to know. I've killed a lot of people. Because if I have hatred in my heart towards my brother... I've killed him. Anybody else here a murderer like me? You see, Jesus took this to the next level. It wasn't about how many guys you killed in the city. It was about your heart. It's about your thoughts. It's about your actions, it was about your words. Anybody ever cut somebody with a knife? Anybody ever cut somebody with a knife? How about your tongue? Yeah? Oh, that we would be people who would hate our sin more than we hate other people's sins. Because then we could be lumped in with the all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God which means all of us could be lumped in with you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked which means we also could be lumped in with the but God being rich in mercy we could be lumped in there too let's pray Father I pray that we would be honest honest that we would hate our sin. We make war against our sin. We would not be complacent. We would not be compromising with the world. Or but Lord, as you bring the consequences sometimes that we would trust you more, and as you let us free from the consequences sometimes that we would trust you more. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And ask you to stand